0: Fear is like a its like a blanket, it's like a virus that you have. And as long as we're carrying the virus with us and never curing it, we're never gonna have the ability to reach the highs because we're not well. We're carrying an illness inside us. So only by going into the darkness, by going into fear, overcoming it, even if just temporarily, are we able to shed ourselves of that weight and that baggage so that we can fly and soar and actually surrender to who we really are, which is love and abundance and fucking happiness. You know, it's not like we're going outward to find that. That's all inside. It's just curing ourselves of the sickness, which is the fear and the delusion that it creates.
1: That was Aubrey Marcus, and this is episode 196 of Wellness Force Radio. What's up, my friend? It's your host, Josh Trent, and welcome back to another episode for your weekly access to global experts in all things wellness as we discover the physical and emotional intelligence we need to live life well. In this episode, we welcome back Aubrey Marcus for his return to wellness force to take an even deeper dive than in round number one. This time, I got to sit with Aubrey while he was on his book tour in New York, and what happened in the next 55 minutes was like unpacking a treasure chest of verbal diamonds. This podcast goes down as one of my all-time favorites and will be a classic that many more shows in the future will flow from. If you haven't yet heard episode 123 with Aubrey, go back right now, set a pin, listen to that episode 123 and how Aubrey's message and presence has stayed so true and aligned since then. Now his new book, Own the Day, Own Your Life, has been on the New York Times bestseller for over two weeks straight, and I got to read an advanced proof to feel the depth and the power of this incredible handbook for operations of human potential and human optimization in this frenetic modern world. Because look, the truth is, most health and wellness and personal development books out there, they try to change way too many things about human behavior up front. This is why they tend to fall short. But as you'll learn today from Aubrey, if you take a deep breath and choose to win the moment and then win the day, you can, brick by dedicated brick, truly own your life. And it starts with our breath. So take a deep one because you've earned it. This is your breath break. Let's go. Five, 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 five. Five seconds each. Inhale, pause. Exhale, pause. (sighs) Ah, that feels really good. Notice how you change your state how it's always there for you to choose to go there. And the way you support your breath and your energy in your busy day is no different. This is why I'm so grateful and excited to give a huge shout out to our sponsor Organifi to be in business with this company, creating their red, green, and gold superfood powders. This has been a go-to for me for almost a year. The cordyceps, beets, and reishi mushroom and rhodiola in the red superfood powder has become my twice a day mainstay for my afternoons. And the best part is it's organic, Gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, vegan, and non-GMO. Not to mention, it's voted number one best-tasting red juice by Drew's mom. <laughs> if you know Drew on Facebook, then you know why that's so funny. But today, go online. Go to organified.com forward slash wellnessforce. Use code wellnessforce to get 20% off the cordyceps, beets, reishi mushroom, and rhodiola in the red, and anything else you place in your cart. Stop throwing away old veggies and fruits. That you're not going to eat anyways. You know, the ones at the very back of the fridge. Instead, stack your home and your work environments for your nutritional favor. Go online today, organified.com forward slash Wellness Use code Wellness Force to get 20% off your great tasting and energy boosting red juice today. And one day, that's all it takes. A single day is like your life. Each part is connected. Each choice you make influences the future choices you make. To realize true transformation, you have to focus not on changing one thing, but changing one day. Knowing is not the most powerful thing when it comes to owning your life. It's the being in that current moment and the doing of our workouts, eating healthy foods, drinking water, having connected conversations where you're vulnerable, and of course, Being confident and being in a state of self-love late at night after you've had a stressful day and all the tentacles of temptations from our modern world are wrapping themselves around your ankle, where do you go? This is a question that leads us, well, all roads lead us, to self-love. And on top of self-love is self-care, which is really in this current world, one of the most challenging things to do. And sleeping, working, eating, training, playing, and sex... These aspects is what today Aubrey dives in so deep on, as well as talking about the breakfast industrial complex, why breakfast has actually been backwards for decades and people are starting to wake up to that fact. What happens when you truly surrender to who you are? Gluten sensitivity versus celiac and the mindset we can have that'll actually be more of a deleterious impact than the gluten sensitivity itself open relationships. We went deep into open relationships, how Aubrey has grown himself so much by being in an open relationship and the power of forgiveness and acknowledgement. Where We had a few moments in depth in this conversation where the emotions truly started to flow and the ego was a passenger. And this is where all love exists anyways. You know, since I've gotten back from Costa Rica and Rhythmia, the impact of my plant medicine experience has deepened my desire to remember every single day exactly who I am. And I stand here today with you, a trusting, authentic, inspiring leader who is discovering the physical and emotional intelligence to live life well, just like you, just like we've always been in this journey together. And now we get to drop in to one of my favorite conversations ever recorded for the show with the founder and CEO of On It, Aubrey Marcus. Man, it was like a year ago you and I sat at your Airbnb in Los Angeles. I and I remember at that time, you introduced me to the concept of mental override. Yeah. Which was what you learned from Bodie Miller and this concept of mental override. Uh, I have used that so many times since our first meeting, man. So I want to thank you for that.
0: Welcome. Yeah. I cover it again in the book, obviously.
1: <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, so people know you, man. Pete, everyone has heard of Aubrey Marcus. This book, though, I remember a year ago, I asked you this question. I was like, how do you deal with all these distractions? You know, there's many distractions, a lot of people that want your time, a lot of people that are constantly kind of wanting energy from you. This book, there's strategies in there around getting rid of the distractions. I think many of us deal with that probably more now than ever before.
0: That's definitely true. And and I think the key part is just to know your mission, know your priorities, know like what you're in the game for, and then it makes it really easy to just chart your path. No, I wouldn't say really easy. You know, there's still competing motivations. You still care for people. You still yeah. want to give everybody as much time as you can. But, you know, feeling comfortable letting some people down, feeling comfortable letting some rabbits go unchased you know, <laughs> like yeah. that's, uh, that's gonna be, you know, a big part of what's coming up next, because, you know, now there's just more and more and more press. At a certain point, you know, I have to say no. You know, I have 12 yeah. days carved out in Sedona. And um, there's press coming in those days. And I just keep saying, no, that's my time.
1: What did you learn the most about yourself, man? Uh, You know, going through these thresholds, this book, it's 300 plus pages. It's the thickest daily guide I've ever seen, but yet (laughs) it was so super easy to read. I want to talk about how you structured it as well. But uh, 300 academic and clinical references. This is so much work. Like, What did you learn about Aubrey in the creation?
0: Well, I learned that I could really sacrifice when I needed to, I learned that I could make the hard choices to get the things done that I needed to get done, you know, and I knew I learned a lot about myself as a writer. I think I would always write in briefer, smaller moments of inspiration, or maybe when there was a deadline for school or something like that. But when you're writing a book this size, you can't decide when you're going to write or when you're not going to write, you have to write when you have the free time. So again, it's that act of mental override. It's just sitting your ass down in the chair and writing the damn book.
1: But you knew though, I mean, you, you even talked about sitting on your grandma's lap and you're like, I always knew I was going to be a writer. I always knew that this was going to come through me at some point. Uh, How much space was that uh, recognition?
0: You know, how old were you then versus now?
1: What's that time lapse? It's
0: never, it's never wavered. You know, I've always known that at some point I was going to be a writer and I didn't know when, I mean, and I've always been writing. You know, my my Instagram is like a is like a, story, a book of short maxims and a book of short fables. You yeah. know, everything I put out there is crafted with intention for the most part, and I've continued to write between blogs and poems and those and. But this is the real aggregation of something substantial, yeah, on the nonfiction side, and um, you know, I'm proud of it. I, I paid the blood price. I did everything yeah. I could, and uh, now it's. It's out there in the world, which is beautiful.
1: Uh, Own the Day, Own Your Life is the book. It's a bridge, you say, to help us all become the best possible version of ourselves. I think you and I have heard this in the personal development world, but yet it has Mm -hmm. a different context. It has a different flavor when I hear it and when I read it in your book, like what does that actually mean to you to be the best version of ourselves? Aren't we already beautiful and awesome right
0: now? We're just kind of getting out of the way of that. I, I imagine life like a giant jungle gym with all kinds of different possibilities on it. You know, like we have the opportunity to to play with all of these different experiences, whether it's surfing or hiking or traveling or connecting with others or connecting with ourselves or accomplishing things, helping others. It's like this giant jungle gym. But some of us aren't in physical condition to even play with the toys. We can't even do the things there. And some of us don't even have enough energy to really stay out there for more than 20 minutes at a time, to really yeah. enjoy the day and into the evening and interact with all the possibilities. You know, this book is about just getting you sound enough that you have the energy, you have the wellness, you have the flexibility, the mobility, the intention, the process so that you can really fucking live and just enjoy. The opportunity we have at the greatest video game we could ever possibly fathom, which is life.
1: Yeah, this uh, this video game. One of the things we get to do is we get to have sex, <laughs> and yeah. sex, sex yeah. is fun, right? Like we we are this you know half beast, half spirit. Napoleon Hill talks about this. He's like, you know, men can have a superpower when they use the vehicle of sex. Uh, your fiancé hosts this documentary series, Love Undressed. But a lot of people don't know this about you, man. You talk about this in the book with such raw, authentic power. You're like, you know, in my 20s, I would actually turn down certain women because I had been really hard on myself. You came from this deep Mm. sports background. Tell us about that. Like, why did you feel like you wanted to put that in the book of just raising your hand and being like, yeah, in my 20s, I actually turned down
0: sex. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it's easy to talk about all your wins. (laughs) And so it's easy to talk about you know everything great you've done and just not get into the real shit but everybody has their challenges everybody goes through their shit and when i you know look at how i can be someone that connects with people and you know i got to talk about the times where i fucking totally blew it you know that's that's the section of the book called getting owned yeah and in the bedroom you know your greatest enemy is your own mind and your own ego And when you start judging your performance and validating everything you do, it's basically like putting a mirror on your partner's genitals and then looking at yourself the whole time and judging whether you're a man enough or whether you're worthy enough based on what you're doing there. Then the whole act becomes not fun in and of itself and plus you're terrible at it, you know, because there's (laughs) so much fear wrapped up in the experience rather than, you know, sex truly can only happen in the present moment. Sex is happening in the present. And that's what's beautiful about it. You know, it's the smells and feels and sounds and touch and connection. And whenever you get out of that, you know, you run into trouble. And and yeah, in my twenties, I was a fucking mess and it got to be so painful because I was not validating myself. I was disvalidating myself by all the poor performances that I just didn't even want to do it for a while. And that was a really dark period of my life. And so the process of unwinding the need to validate yourself in the bedroom or validate yourself through someone else and just enjoying it again. Just enjoying the act and being a present present lover, it, not worrying about their ego, checks out at the door and just listens and, and enjoys the experience.
1: This conversation around sex, it's not always easy for people to have. It's almost like we have a stigma, especially in the United States, where we're not supposed to address it. I mean, look at sex education right? This education, sex of sex. education. Exactly. <laughs> so there's like sex. a lack of, right? So yeah. your, your book, I almost feel like is a field manual for men and women that really want to explore this sexuality that possibly men, they never really take took a look at when they were growing up. And I think I can raise my hand and vouch for, I'm in my twenties. I remember I was driving home and I had like not performed. I couldn't keep it hard for this woman I was dating at the time. And I had like a nervous breakdown. And I started, yeah, like, I started to like, I started to like take this real. inventory of myself, like, oh, my God, am I worthy? You know, and then I did my yeah. work and I realized like, oh, I'm just a human being. Yeah. And I think the seriousness of sex, why do you think that sex is such a serious topic? And how are you and your voice, man, with your community, this ripple you're putting out there? How are you making sex not that big of a deal anymore, but yet pleasurable? And something people would dive into.
0: Again, I think you really have to understand that we are rampant, rabid validation seekers. And, you know, there's not a lot of things that make us feel like men. Like, we don't have rites of passage. You know, most of us aren't going to war. Most of us aren't going on long hunts and procuring meat for the village. So we have these, like, surrogate ways that we validate our manhood. And one of the surrogate ways we validate our manhood is through our sexuality. And we're all under this presupposition that we're all supposed to be like LeBron James (laughs) in the bedroom. You know, we're all supposed to be the best you know, perform impeccably and have the biggest dick and just, just slay all day. You know, we have this idea about ourselves like that's what it takes to even be a man. And so, you know, we go into it really looking to validate something about ourselves rather than to enjoy the experience. And that's where you really run into a hell of a lot of trouble. And you, you run into that trouble in any variety of ways. It's not just the bedroom. You could try to validate yourself in the gym you can try to validate yourself with your bank account you can try to validate yourself in a million ways but the truth of the matter is that we're already valid you know like all human beings as long as we're doing our best to express ourselves the best we can we're gonna screw it up we're gonna fuck up constantly it's just the nature of what it is but to not use that to judge ourselves and make ourselves seem less worthy or less valid or less worthy of love or less worthy of a happy life the open
1: relationships piece is a challenge for many people. Uh, it's a challenge have,
0: for everybody. How
1: have you actually done this, though? I mean, let, let's go down to the dirty details, man. Like open relationships level with us here. Uh, have you trained your nervous system and your heart <laughs> to stay open in this process? How have you done this?
0: Well, it's a trial by fire, right? I mean, you imagine the person you know you love and then you imagine them falling in love, having sex with somebody else you know, simultaneously at the yeah. same time. It's
1: a crazy and visual.
0: It is, it is a crazy, intense visual, and yeah. it's crazy, intensely painful. But what you learn, again, is about that validation. What part of their love makes you feel more worthy of love? Because if they're giving it to someone else, that shouldn't affect you. All right, Maybe, the, maybe you're not with them for that time period, but as long as they come back and their love hasn't changed, which is the nature of this, because love is in abundance. It's not like one piece of pie, and if you cut half of that pie, you have the you have you don't have as much pie for you when you come home. Like yeah. the more love you experience, generally the more love you have and the more love you can share. So it really just shows you where you're insecure, where you are still seeking validation, where you're worried that you're not worthy of love because somebody's better than you at something else. And so it's this deep path towards ultimately the only inoculation you have from all of the pain and all of the suffering is radical self-love, is knowing that you are whole as who you are, regardless of whether somebody else loves you or just choosing to sleep with you at this moment or whatever. It's like the ultimate ayahuasca journey into yeah. with the only way out of the suffering and the purging and the pain, a, a radical form of self-love and a radical yeah. form of love for your partner that is unpossessive. And, and is just happy for their happiness. The
1: challenging part about this is that we've been taught for millennia, you know, that a man and a woman or, you know, especially in our time now, it's like doesn't really matter what sex you are. But so many people, man, like myself included, the thought of having a relationship and somebody else being with my partner, it like shoots fear down my spine. And, and so this I almost feel like do you approach polyamory as a personal growth tool? Is it a personal growth practice?
0: It has to be. It has to be because I think you get into it. You get into it thinking, like, oh, it's going to be fun to sleep with other people. You know, like that's <laughs> going to be a blast. But that's not going to outweigh the pain. Like the pleasure of that is not going to outweigh the pain unless you use and catalyze that pain to be part of that self growth process. You know, that's the only way that that is worth it. Now, that's not to say that your experiences with other lovers will not be phenomenal and ecstatic you know i'm in new york with one of my other lover who i call my girlfriend savannah i'm here in new york right now and it's fucking incredible but that's not the reason for the open relationship entirely that's a great part of it but the other side of it is i'm a way better man than i ever was because of what i've had to go through with whitney seeing other people on her side You know, and and that's you have to have both. You have to be willing to put yourself in the fire to grow as a human being. And, you know, you also get the benefit and the reward of meeting and sharing love with amazing other beautiful people.
1: Yeah. This reminds me of many experiences I've had. I just got back from a week in Costa Rica at Rhythmia. And there were moments when I was going through all my relationships and I was noticing I was aware of how many women I had tried to own. I had tried to like own them like they were <laughs> yeah. property, you know, and I, and I'm yeah. being honest right now. And it was like the ayahuasca showed me, oh, Josh, you don't own anyone. No one owns anyone. That's the whole point of relationship to relate to one another. It's not a possession thing. And so I think this is why that's a very charged issue. Um, do you get heat for polyamory? Do you get heat for this?
0: Oh, fuck. Yeah. I mean, I get shit all the time. The first thing, the first, it's very triggering for people because it's very scary, especially for men. It's very scary. The idea that your woman might want to sleep with another man like that thought alone is like oh shit yeah because we're taught something different we're taught that if we're the alpha male and if we're you know sexually dominant enough that they'll be fully you know fully happy with us alone and they'll never look at anybody else and we're taught our ego is taught that yeah so you have to undo that teaching and then so that's a very triggering thing to think about and causes people to lash out you know i mean i think we get all kinds of messages. Whitney gets messages like, if I was your man, you know, I'd be yours alone, blah, blah, blah. And then other men will be like, you're a fucking cuckold. Can't be such a pussy. I can't believe you allow the people to screw your girl. I'm, wow. My pimp ain't so strong. You know, that would never happen. I'm like, uh, you know, <laughs> all right, everybody, I love you guys, but you're totally missing the point. You yeah. know what I mean? And then the people, and then there's a lot of other people, but most people get it and realize like, damn, that's a hard journey. You know, I don't know if I'd be ready for that. Yeah. And I wouldn't push them to be ready for that. I mean, this is something like plant medicine. Like you really gotta, you really gotta be ready for it. You really gotta want to call in those deeper levels of emotional mastery. Or, you know, stay the fuck out of the deep water because there's <laughs> monsters there. And this, those is monsters a, will get
1: you. this is the bigger deal is that really what I see you as, is you're this voice for human optimization. So everybody knows on it, uh, episode 123, a year ago, we talked in LA where we really started this conversation about what does it mean to be the best version of yourself in that is a lot of things you dive into in the book here, waking, working, learning, eating, training, playing, and sleeping and sex. Uh, one of my favorite things though, that you dove into was this. In breakfast industrial complex uh the breakfast <laughs> part man it's like, i loved how you described that because i think about the flintstone cartoons where you know barney was smoking cigarettes well tobacco uh-huh. went to court the breakfast industrial complex that you write about i think there's only a matter of years before the food companies are also going to find themselves in court tell us about this though why you named it the breakfast industrial complex
0: well there's just so much misinformation about breakfast right like Wheaties is the breakfast of champions like what what the fuck are you talking about you know just a bunch of carbohydrates for breakfast so your metabolism and and your blood sugar is going to spike and then your insulin is going to dump in your body and then you're going to go hypoglycemic and need more sugar and you're playing an exhausting game of metabolic ping pong ultimately leading to insulin insensitivity and diabetes throughout your life and obesity like That's the breakfast champion, and that's not even the worst. You know, I talk about when I used to eat Pop Tarts for breakfast, which is just like frosting and sugar on top of bready, pasty carbohydrates, which basically immediately turns into sugar, with more sugar filling in between. You know, it's like unreal what we actually put in our bodies for breakfast, and that's the first thing we do. You know, it's just setting us up for this roller coaster where we're going to be chasing the sugar and caffeine dragon for the entire day. Breakfast isn't the most important meal of the day. That's a bunch of bullshit. It's actually good to give your body extended periods of fasting. So after you fasted overnight, extending that up till noon, that'll give you enough time to start creating growth hormone. Part of the repair cascades for the body. It helps with longevity. It's called intermittent fasting. So whether you have breakfast, you want to keep that really high fat, high protein, high fiber, low carbohydrate, or skip it entirely. And that's just... You look at the breakfast aisles of stuff, and yeah, all right, we got some eggs and some bacon, and that stuff's fine. But for the most part, it's a bunch of junky, sugary, fruit yeah. loopy, carbohydrate you know, bullshit.
1: Yeah, this is where it plugs in for me because I can distinctly remember uh, growing up on welfare. We would have like kicks and cornflakes and all these different cereals. And it was just normal for me that I would eat cereal for breakfast. So we have these things that are imprinted on our child's mind. And then we grow up as adults and we unlearn your book helps people unlearn all these habits from childhood that were deemed as normal. Yet, I mean, we look at the research now. Multiple studies are published in the index in the back of your book. What did you get surprised by the most? when you dove into this nutritional aspect in the book like was there anything that came up that really surprised you
0: well just the overwhelming research on the benefits of a high fat diet you know like it's it's so beyond question and it's still so not mainstream you'll still go to a health like a health spa or health hotel or the healthy side of a menu in a resort and you'll still see non fat milk and egg whites and i just look at it and i'm like what the that's fuck so sad are you what guys about the poor about? yolk? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like and, and all of the research shows that the ingestion of dietary cholesterol actually helps the ratio of your good cholesterol to your bad cholesterol. Like the cholesterol that you're talking about in in terms of good and bad cholesterol, that's actually the carrier of cholesterol. Cholesterol is the fatty substrate that's the substrate that creates hormones and helps make the body run correctly. That's what comes from food. And then it either gets carried on little tiny boats that get shipwrecked in your arteries. That's the very low density, small VLDL cholesterol. Or it's the large fluffy boats like the ocean liners that actually deliver it into the cells in the proper way. And the more cholesterol you have, the more the big boats are utilized, the less you have this arterial damage and the more heart healthy you're going to be. Like we have the whole fucking thing completely backwards. And you know, it's just all the research points to that, but you know, nonetheless, even now they'll still come out with some bogus conflicting concept and, yes. and you'll have to go back again to the research and unwind where they've been misleading in that regard.
1: What does a normal breakfast look like for you now compared to a couple years ago? I mean, I'm sure you learn just so much about nutrition and just by going through your own human optimization process, like what's your meal now in the morning? Do you typically skip? Do you have more of a higher fat, moderate protein? Yeah,
0: I mean, I, I really like bone broth for breakfast. Like that's that to me That to me is one of my most satisfying and satiating things. Like today I had a, a TV appearance So I actually got some chia pudding, which was awesome because there's this little uh, juice store, some chia pudding and some green juice, which is great. Chia high in omega-3s. It's going to have some healthy fats, a little bit of protein, some fiber, get things moving and give me a little bit of energy from that food. And then the green juice with the mineralization. So I came in really kind of fresh and on fire. And then after that, you know, after I, you know, kind of shot that first, you know, cannonball of energy out there and then I wanted to refuel and I have a bunch more podcasts. I went straight to a ramen place and I don't eat really eat the noodles. I just get the broth and the pork and the pork belly and all yeah. the veggies and the pickled you know, the pickled onions, the pickled mushrooms and this combination. And now I just feel phenomenal. My blood sugar hasn't spiked at all today. I've had a little bit of butter coffee, which is great with more fats. My bowels have been moving perfectly clear and I'm owning my day now. Now I'll have this podcast. I'll have another interview too. I'll have more things to do there and I'm going to be fine. Whereas if I'd have started with ordering room service and getting the pancakes or getting the waffles yeah. or getting the, even the eggs Benedict where I'm cutting into one of those fluffy things or the sandwich, that amount of carbohydrate, I'd be crashing right now. And that's just been a big key lesson. I'm not against all carbs, but I choose them at night when i want that narcotic effect when i want them to make me sleepy
1: there's a timing aspect too right i mean you know post-workout pre-workout timing carbohydrates is big as well do you feel like 23andme and our genetic predisposition plays some roles in this for example i was talking with david perlmutter about my apoe 3-4 which is basically i don't process saturated fat as efficiently as most people because of my predisposition however Your report card is how you feel, your digestion, your energy, everything else. How do you balance the two, man, the analytical 23andMe data versus how you feel?
0: I really throw out the 23andMe data more often than not. You know, when, I, when we really get into the power of epigenetics and your ability to upregulate and downregulate genetic expression yeah. based even on something as simple as belief. I mean, that's what Joe Dispenza talks about in his book, You Are the Placebo. This isn't hocus pocus. This is the placebo effect in action, literally changing the body based on the changes of your mind. This kind of predetermination that genetics or food testing and all this stuff can do, All right, take that as information, but don't take that as the Holy Bible. You know, don't take that as the thing that matters the most because you're able to switch and change what happens with your body depending on your mind. And I have examples of that in the book. People fed two identical milkshakes, one of them telling them it's an indulgent diner style, high sugar, high fat milkshake. The other saying it's a health shake. And their hormone response to the exact same thing was wildly different. The amount of insulin they released, the amount, everything was wildly different just based on what their mind thought about the exact same food. Yeah. So I think it's really important to pay attention to the mind's effect on the body. And so the more information that you have that you think like, oh, well, if I have this, then I'm screwed for life, or I don't process this well, It's it can be fine to have that information, but know that you're honestly typically more powerful than you realize.
1: And it's interesting when you, I think you said, fuck your gluten sensitivity. Like that's one of the, caveats yeah, yeah, yeah. Of the teaching principles in the book. Uh, the research is in the gluten sensitivity versus celiac. It's really, really low. And this goes to your power of belief. If you believe yeah. while you're eating a sandwich, even if it's like raw cheese, sprouted bread, these are all healthy things for people that have a healthy digestive system. But if they tell themselves, Aubrey, like this is going to hurt me. Well, then it might.
0: It will. It undoubtedly will. That's the nocebo effect. So somebody reads something like wheat belly, and they may have grown up Italian, and they've been eating fucking pasta their whole life, and they read wheat belly. And it's not that wheat belly is incorrect, but it exaggerates the damage done by wheat to such an extent that the moment that you have any wheat, you start to think that you're going to get inflamed, and you start to think that you're going to be poisoned, and you start to think that you're going to have a stomach ache, and guess what? You can convince your body to do that just like you can convince your body to be well if you take that placebo pill it's, we we can't underestimate the power of the mind and we have to use that to our advantage and not to our disadvantage
1: yeah the power of the mind and it comes to a question that we had a bunch of questions for you but we'll ask only three today from the wellness force community and it was around this information of humility and health journey so somebody's going through a health journey mark asks aubrey what is the role of humility in our health and wellness journey especially during setbacks injury or illness how do you see humility in this process
0: well i think humility is striking the balance between authenticity and knowing when you're just picking on yourself. I think there's sometimes where you're just really just picking on yourself and you're actually being too hard on yourself. Yeah. And then there's other times where you're being inauthentic, you're puffing yourself up beyond what you really are or tamping yourself down. Like I think there's a certain humility that in in expressing yourself to the fullest that really people don't people don't look at. I mean, I think a lot of times we put on these false airs of, oh, you know, I'm just working on it. And we don't really own our successes, which we call it humility, but it's actually more humble to just be authentic. Mm. And so I think when you're really looking at it, just be radically authentic. Express when you fucked it up. Express when you've killed it. You know, and let the public opinion go whichever way they want. But as long as you're genuinely authentic and you're not adding more to the negative or adding more to the positive then people will identify with you and be able to support you in a much better way.
1: There's this section in your book where you talk about forgiveness, but really um, there was an underscore of permission. You were driving home. I think you were 34 at the time and you had this crazy day where you put all these fires and you just said out loud while you're driving, good job, Aubrey. You did a really good job today. And you said it was like this energy that you felt that expanded you and you started to cry from it. It was like the first time in your whole life you had given yourself this good job, Aubrey sentence. Can you take us there? What was that?
0: Even I mean, even thinking about it now, I mean, obviously I wrote it in the book, but I still don't do that enough. You know what I mean? Like that that just hit home for me now because I've been. I've been launching this book and it's just one thing to the next thing. And you think about all the mistakes that you made and you think about all the ways that you could have done it better and, and all the parts of my relationship where I fucked it up and, and, uh, and it's real easy to be just self-critical, you know, but that was a key moment for me where I'd almost never said that before. And still now I rarely say it. And so like hearing you say it and then internalizing that in my head, you know, that's the first time in two weeks that I've said it. And it's just, it's nice. It's yeah. necessary to have that kind of positive reinforcement. We can't just be that asshole coach of ourselves that only points out our mistakes and only points out when we screw things up. You know, We also have to be in balance, and when we do a good job, you're like, hey, good job, man, well done. And I think yeah. that's really, really important to balance out those forces.
1: Yeah, man. And this coach inside of all of us, uh, the inner critic it can be empowering, but then it has a limit, right? And and this is unique for all of us because there are some people that they're just kind of spiritually bypassing all the time. And they're like, you know, I don't want to have any bad vibes. I never want to feel bad vibes. It's good vibes only. I know that's complete bullshit in my own life. Yeah. It's, it's the exploration yeah. of these deeper states of emotions that really unwind and unravel the greatest levels of joy. If we're not willing, I remember last year you said, you know, if your spirituality is tinfoil and you're not being tested Then how are you ever supposed to feel what it really feels like to love deeply, to be in joy and ecstasy if you haven't gone to the darkest, most scariest places? Can you talk a little bit about that contrast?
0: I think you always anytime you have fear, fear is like a it's like a blanket, it's like a virus that you have. Like, you know, when when you're sick and you're carrying a sickness, you just don't have enough energy. Like, yeah, all right, you can summon enough. Maybe you can play a basketball game when you're sick, but you're gonna be fucking exhausted. You know, like everything is just dampened. And as long as we're carrying the virus of sickness with us and never curing it, we're never gonna have the ability to reach the highs because we're not well. We're carrying an illness inside us. So only by going into the darkness, by going into fear, Overcoming it, even if just temporarily, are we able to shed ourselves of that weight and that baggage so that we can fly and soar and actually surrender to who we really are, which is love and abundance and fucking happiness? You know, it's not like we're going outward to find that. That's all inside. Yeah. You know, it's just curing ourselves of the sickness, which is the fear and the delusion that it creates.
1: You write about the psychologist aspect. There's four keys for compelling positive actions, knowing what to do and how to do it, believing it'll work, power of belief again, uh, seeing the value and then getting support from your family and tribe. You give so many tactics and tips and just really well-vetted practices for human optimization. But yet without these four men, without these four keys, none of those things can be implemented for the long term. Can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about those four keys and how the, those kind of underlays all these practices?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you have to convince the mind, you know, you can't, you can't bypass the mind solely with mental override. You can, you know, which is, which is the ability to just use your will to override the complaints of the mind. Like some of us might be strong enough that we don't need anybody, any help from everybody. We don't need to convince the mind that it works, but for most of us, all right, we got to know exactly what and how we're doing first of all. And I think the book, you know, the prescription section shows that then we have to believe it will work. Well, part of that is that belief, you know, which is partly based on faith, but it's also the 300 clinical academic references. You're not the first person to try this. This is stories of myself and top performers and other people doing this. This works, and so you have to convince the mind that it is going to work, and that way the mind will be more apt to do it. Like No one's gonna turn the shower nozzle cold If you don't know that it's going to lead to 42% less chance of respiratory tract infections, that it's going to raise your norepinephrine and drop your cortisol, which is your chronic stress, it's going to build cold shock proteins, which helps your longevity. It's going to have all these positive effects, plus affect a positive state change that you're going to feel moving forward for the rest of the day. If you don't know that, you're not just going to turn it cold. You're not going to do that. So you have to have that ability to convince the mind, you know, know what you're doing, know why you're doing it. And then of course, having other people you can talk to about it and be like, Oh yeah, man, took a cold shower. Did you take cold? Yeah, I did, man. It was great. You know, that was super helpful. Let's do it again. Let's go jump in this ice bath together. You know, let's, that's, that's a huge element as well.
1: It's building the community around you that likes to do kind of the hard things that you like to do. Cause I'm thinking about cold showers. It makes me feel really, really small and cold and frail and uncomfortable. Yet when I've done it, and then I've done the breathing. My day is amazing. It's just yeah. that first part, right? If we, can, if we can allow, really it's allow. Can we allow ourselves to just feel that discomfort? And, and so many practices like that are in the book. Just allow ourselves to feel a small timeline of discomfort. And then we get to just harvest all these beautiful things for the rest of
0: the day. That's life, man. Like if you're not willing to, how would I write this book? if I wasn't to deal with a small level of discomfort. Yeah. You know, I talk about it like yeah. writing a book. I'm in a, alone in a room. There's nobody around me. And I would go to hotels where I wouldn't have anybody who I know anywhere near me. And you just walk around in circles and you masturbate and you try and procrastinate and figure out everything that you can do before writing. And then eventually you just like, fuck it, I got to write. And then eventually you just get better and better and better at just waking up and doing it. It's the same thing. With the cold shower, I knew the book was going to be good for me. I knew the book was going to be good for the world. I know the shower is going to be good for me. I know it's going to be good for the world. So you do it and you can train that with little things so that when it comes to the big things like writing the book or asking that girl out or having the courage to go chase your fears, then you're able to do the big shit, too.
1: Let's talk about the structure because the way that you wrote the book, um, there's the three pointers, which is like the really distilled versions of everything that's before it. But then each one has really a systematic approach to walk someone through these major life practices. I mean, these like mm-hmm. seven, eight optimized practices, they're not always easy, but, but the way that you design the book, like what, what made you design it that way? Do you like the rule of threes? I see the rule of threes a lot in your book.
0: Yeah, you know, it it just seems to kind of make sense. We always say count to three, and <laughs> three is, you know, psychologists have really kind of narrowed it down that we can only really keep three or four things in our head at one time anyways. And so that number seems to work, but it's nothing that's particularly magical or special. But yeah, I mean, the structure of the book, it starts with getting owned, you know, it starts with all the ways that we've blown it. And I always try to include myself in there because I've screwed up pretty much every single one of the principles that I talk about in the book at some yeah. point or another. And, and and the effects that that has personally and universally when we blow it. And then we talk about doing it right. And then we give a very clear prescription on what exactly you need to do and then move into the three pointers. Oh, no. First, then there's the now do it, which addresses any, any kind of reservations, any kind of objections, any reason why you might not do those practices and some some mental tactics to help you actually get it done. And then the summary at the end of the chapter.
1: The, uh, act of forgiveness, the skill set. I feel like forgiveness is the strongest skill set that people are not training david hawkins work if you look at power versus force he actually has this vibrational measurement of frequency for shame which is a 20 and then forgiveness which is a 350 so the magnitude the vibrational healing of forgiveness quantified it's so powerful yet forgiveness you know oprah might have a little meme on facebook about it you really talk about that in this book why is forgiveness so powerful and why did you choose to put it in the book man
0: because we are relentless arbiters of of our own version of justice and we apply that form of justice on ourselves by either giving or withholding our own self-love and as long as we are still in judgment of ourselves for something in the past as long as we're holding ourselves in judgment and we haven't forgiven ourselves then we're going to withhold our own love, we're going to withhold and reject love from others. We're going to continue to punish ourselves until we feel like we've been adequately punished for our past transgressions. And the only way to get out of that pattern is to radically forgive the past, to recognize that we're just human. And if we could have done better, we would have done better, you know, but we didn't have the information. We weren't the type of person that we are. We didn't have the training. We didn't have the knowledge. We didn't have the experience. So forgive that past person. Stop punishing yourself for it so that you can actually apply that self-love to yourself and open yourself back up to love and abundance from the universe instead of punishing yourself relentlessly for everything that you've done in the past.
1: Yeah, it just doesn't have to be so hard. But yet sometimes the subconscious, the ego makes it that challenging because it's really a way that people can stay safe. And this is a concept that's talked about so much in personal development. It's can the ego stay safe by not actually challenging you and therefore it'll kick the shit out of you for years because at least that's known. At least that's familiar. And this Mm -hmm. contrast of growing from that, though, that is very scary. If somebody's listening right now, they're like, yeah, I know I'm in a war with my ego constantly. Is there a starting step? Is there a beginning modality to actually uh, get out of that, get out of that cycle?
0: Albert Einstein says you can't solve a problem at the same level that it was created. You know what I mean? And there's uh, a famous Buddhist named Mujibaba, who I follow, and he calls these fires that the ego starts, these fires that the ego starts, if you go and try to put out the fires as the ego, the attention that you give the fires is just going to create more fire. And you see these lessons over and over again. I actually asked an mboga shaman, which is a psychedelic plant from Africa. I said, you know, how do you deal with the ego? How do you bring the ego down? He says, you don't bring the ego down. You bring your true self up. You bring who you really are up. And then the ego becomes less important. And all of these different ways, from Albert Einstein to Mugenda the Aboga Shaman to Muji Baba, the Buddhist, the Buddhist master, everybody's saying the same thing, which is basically acknowledge and identify with who you really are beyond the ego. Identify as that force of love, as life itself expressed, that force of presence, consciousness. There's a million names for it. Identify as that and allow the ego to just be along for the ride instead of identifying as the ego and then putting your consciousness along for the unconscious ride that your ego is taking it on. Mm. And you know, there's a lot of practices for that, but you find your true self in the stillness. You find it when you quiet the mind. And how do you quiet the mind? You quiet the mind with meditation, with yoga, with ecstatic dance, with sensory deprivation, with plant medicines, with any variety of different ways So that you can bring who you really are up and that puts your ego much more in proportion and in balance with your life. And it's
1: also um, not a fight anymore. Like I've never heard someone explain it where you don't actually put the ego down. You bring your authentic, beautiful self up. I mean, I love that for so many reasons, because um, that's a different way of describing this fight versus can we actually love the ego? I mean, the ego has brought us this far. It's allowed you to create on it. It's allowed you to to write this book. We can't diminish our ego because if we do that, we lose our flavor of our soup. Like we got to have some flavor (laughs) in this life, man.
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, ego ultimately is a force that, it's a motivating force that ultimately moves love. It gives us an identity. It kind of allows us to assess things. It's a it's a very useful tool. Yeah. But when it's entirely running the show, it's ultimately a fear and comparison-based organism. It only knows itself relative to other things. And so if you only know yourself relative to other things, you're constantly in competition, which means you're constantly in fear and you're constantly in scarcity. The real self knows itself because it is i am here like one of my favorite guides paul Selig. i am here i am here i am here that's that's our true name you know that's who we really are i am here and then aubrey is just the identity form ego form but if we don't know that i am here is who we really are and all we think we are is aubrey then we're only going to know aubrey in comparison to what other people think about aubrey or what aubrey's doing or Blah, blah, blah. And everything's going to be out of whack. So find our true name, which is I am here or I am. And then, you know, you'll be able to navigate the ego a lot better. And and I know this sounds somewhat esoteric, but truly it's the only way, you know, first awareness of the ego and then awareness of the self as I am and then start building up that other part of the self.
1: And there's so many lessons too. whether it is doing the cold shower or plant medicine or anything else that puts you in a state where you're really not in control. It's the white knuckling. It's the fighting against the ego and against having the control that really causes all the suffering. So whether it sounds esoteric or not, I think people understand the more you cling to something, the more exhausting it becomes. You know, the more exhausting this entire life process. And we're meant to thrive, which is what your book is all about. This human condition, this optimization Our baseline is enjoyment connection love physicality all these things that we were born with right but yet things get in the way and i think a big piece of how we can remind ourselves of this power aubrey and you talk about this when you were quoted with the hoka hey from the lakota warrior which means today is a good day to die it's not about leaving anything unfinished it's like if you die today then you've given your greatest gifts and you're totally content and at peace with that yet i think it's the fear of death that really block people from doing their deepest work Afraid what they might find.
0: Yeah, and there's two really important points there, and and I think one of the really important points is you know exactly what you said. The more you fight against something, the more you fight to prop up your ego, like in open. The more I fight to, I am the most dominant, best lover. I am the I am the best man. There could be that she's this other guy's not as good as me. It's just hell, you know. Yeah. But as soon as you surrender, surrender to who you really are, surrender always sounds like you're surrendering to something bad, but really when you're surrendering to who you are, you're surrendering to your own love. You're surrendering to your own worth. You're surrendering to your own life force. You know, you're surrendering to abundance and joy. Like that's what surrender really is, you know, when you're surrendering to yourself. And I think that's, you know, let it go. Just surrender to that force that's inside all of us and that's going to be a much better strategy than trying to cling and prop up and support and fight. And, you know, there's a time for that. Yeah. <laughs> but most of the time with the inner work, surrender is going to lead to the path of mastery. And then you do that enough and then you can get to that place where you can look out on your life because you have lived enough. You've battled the fears. You've lived. You've expressed. You haven't let the ego dominate every decision. You've taken control. You've become conscious you've made choices, you've loved fully, you know, like I, I, Tim Ferriss in his podcast, he asked me, when was the last time I cried tears of joy? And I'm like, I can hardly get through a day without crying tears <laughs> of joy a lot of times. And it doesn't mean I don't suffer and it doesn't mean I, it's healthy. But I'm so open now to all of the things that I'll look in my lover's eyes and start crying. I'll look at a meal like food makes me cry sometimes when it's really well done and I just know that some chef has put their masterwork into it I'll do that or a song or something inspiring you know that I'll see and it's it feels so good to feel that alive that you know the more times you can stack those moments up then fuck you know if my plane goes down you know what I cried eating that I cried eating that burger I cried, you know, looking in the eyes of my lover. I cried listening to that inspiring song. I cried giving that inspiring speech. I fucking, I lived, you know, I had sex for real, not thinking about myself having yeah, sex, but yeah. I had sex for real. Mm. So if it is my time, it is my time, you know, and I'll, cl- I'll cross that threshold, you know, with, with an open heart and, uh, and look forward to the other side, which, you know, I have an inclination is, is pretty beautiful as well. What do you think is on the other side, man? Well, you know, I felt like, I feel like with the plant medicine journeys that I've taken, I feel like I've been there. And you know, that also sounds kooky for those people who haven't done, you know, high doses. We just did plant, a five
1: sequence five. about plant medicine. So people are, w- are really well versed. Like you're talking to, to great people. So they understand you.
0: Well, I think there's, and this is going to go pretty deep, but, uh, hopefully, you know, some people will, will bear with me here. So I think there's two, there's two levels of depth. I think we exist and we're, we're multidimensional beings that exist all the time. A lot of times I think we think, okay, the soul is in our body and that's where it's captured and it doesn't exist anywhere else until we die. Well, our spirit, our life force, our soul exists in other dimensions concurrently while we're still alive. And when we die, we just make a bit, you know, unavailable the expression in physical form and we become who we are, you know, I am, we become who we are on that other dimension. And in that dimension, it's like a quantum reality. Anything you can think of comes to you, anything you can imagine, but you still retain some shape or form. You remember your life and perhaps your other past lives, and and you can interact with other life forms, these these light entities that exist. And you can call this place the astral, you can call it a variety of different things. And and there's other archetypes and polarities and, and different constructs that are identified. And then there's a second death, and that death is the return to the unicity, or what you know, some people might call God, the return to the oneness, that one expression of all the things combined, in which we lose, you know, the retaining of our identity and surrender our identity, our memory, every aspect of ourselves entirely, even as a soul, into the oneness. So I think there's when you talk about death, there's two deaths. There's the physical death, and then there's the death of our identity form in its entirety, even as a soul. And um, I know, obviously, uh, that's just from my own experience. It's not something I've read about or, or yeah. confirmed in any other way, but that's what the plants have shown me. And so I'm pretty confident that I know where I'm going when this when this life ends, which is a great confidence, because then it allows me to put things in perspective. Memento mori. You know, know that you're going to die, and so how are you going to live?
1: Yeah. And I had uh, a very visceral experience of what you're talking about where I'm standing by a fire. I'd done four nights of ceremonies recently. I pulled off my shirt and I threw it in the fire and I put my arms up in the air and I just screamed like, I'm Josh Trent. Cause it was the first time I'd ever actually seen the other side, like actually seen it. I had dove in one night at a time, but doing ceremony, doing plant medicine multiple days in a row, it's a totally different experience. So yes. we're, we already know it's not for everyone. And, and you and I talked about this last year, but this deeper dive, this this exploration through the plants for multiple sessions in a row, I think if someone is called to that, uh, there's incredible healing that can be found
0: there. It can be, and it can also be too much, too much, too fast, yeah. just like open relationship. You know, like it's uh, you have to be mindful of the dose and the pace, and and when you're ready for it, uh, because it will be a trial by fire. Like to know yeah. death, you have to surrender to death. Like, to know your true self, you have to surrender, you know, your egoic self. And and that's going to be a very, very painful process for most of us with an ecstatic return at the end. And you'll have to do it over and over again. You'll forget and you'll have to be reminded and you'll get lost and then you'll find the way again. It's not once you get there, then you're enlightened, <laughs> like, oh, shit, I found it. I know it for sure. Yeah. You'll just have to keep getting reminded. And every time I go back to the plants, I just shake my head and like, God, I'm still so dumb, <laughs> you know?
1: Is there, is there a frequency for you personally that, that you lean into when it comes to plants? Is it multiple times per year? Does it depend on what projects you have? I mean, for me, I know that I need this pressure wash to remind me how beautiful this life is. And it's not even more of a need, needs the wrong word. It's, it's more of like I value and I'm grateful for this spiritual pressure washing that the plants have given me so far.
0: Honestly, I'm, I just kind of have surrendered to when these, when these experiences are coming up. And it's largely dependent on the people that I'm, I'm enjoying them with. Because one of my biggest focuses right now is escalating the friendships and the relationships with those who are closest to me. You know, I really have a reimagining of a new tribal construct, which I think will be probably my third book. And in this new tribal construct, we're bringing back intentional ritual, and we're bringing back these intentional, you know, going through mutual hardships for our benefit and ecstatic states and experiences, so that we have a type of friendship that goes from saying mine to ours in all aspects. And we have that kind of tribal bond um, that's not geographically located and not, it's just by choice. It's like family by choice. and. And, but beyond family, because family, you know, when it's not by choice, that can get all fucked up. And so I'm really doing the plants a lot of times as part of these rituals with key individuals. But that isn't to say that it doesn't wake me up every time and shake me out of my own delusion and remind me of the truth. But the priority and the frequency is based on who I get to do it with and how, you know, eager I am to escalate that relationship.
1: Yeah man, thank you for your vantage point on that too because you know whether it's plants or breath or any kind of state change, it does start with the day, like with the single day. And you talk about this, it's owning the day. It's not owning the whole year in one morning. It's owning each individual day. And honestly, it can be even owning the minute, owning the hour, but a lot of that has to do with ethos. And I love how you put this in your book, man. You said, "Creating an ethos is a shortcut to mastering mental override. It prevents you from the anguish of deliberation over your choices." and starts to define the person that you want to be. Mm-hmm. What's your ethos?
0: My ethos, I think it gets it gets really pretty simple for me. It starts with para el bien de todos, for the good of all. And myself included in that. But when the thing that I don't ever have to think about, and that's like a core part of my ethos, is I'm not going to do something that hurts other people for my benefit. You know, that's not something that's not something that I'm willing to do. Yeah. So, and that's that's just I don't have to deliberate. I have, don't have to deliberate on that whether that's a business decision or whether that's a personal decision or whether that's a relationship decision, there's no, you know, as soon as I can identify, oh, well that's purely selfish that helps me but hurts the other person, then I don't have to deliberate whether to do that or not. And that, I think, is one of the most important ethoses that I try to carry with me. And it doesn't mean that I haven't been blind and fucked that up and done something selfish and not seen the repercussions for another person. But, you know, I don't have to mentally deliberate. Oh, should I take this for me, even though it's going to hurt, you know, these people, but it really won't hurt them that bad? Or It's just not a choice.
1: The one part of this too, that ties into what we're talking about today, this ownership of the day through any channel, uh, any modality, it's it's truly a self-love, self-care practice. So if we're loving ourselves, if we're taking good care of ourselves... Then finally, Aubrey, then we can show up for other people and love the shit out of them. But we have (laughs) to do that for ourselves first. It's not even a have to. It's like we get to. And this is the joy that I feel from you and your media and your marketing. And honestly, dude, just the whole on it brand. So it's been such an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. I just have these three little questions here. Well, actually, they're kind of big questions. They ain't that little. One of them is from Jason Prawl. He's my buddy. He's coming out with the Human Longevity Project. He says, Aubrey, where do you think we're going as a human race? Where do you think humanity? is headed what's your viewpoint on that
0: well i think we we're ultimately heading to the understanding that we're all different facets of the same diamond we're all different nodes in indra's net we're all you know the same being being expressed in a different life and i think we're heading towards that but we're actually steering away from that and we're trying to you know i think it's going to be darkest before the dawn all of these different identities that we're carving out okay well i'm I'm this race and this gender and this thing and this and this makes me, it's all just egoic games of superiority that we're trying to differentiate from each other. And I think ultimately where we're heading is a more universal approach of, oh, we're all people in different stages, different figuring out, let's all work together and let's all work together to solve the big problems of the world so that this game exists for souls to play in for you know, millennia, it's like we'll, we'll come together to save a national park for some newts or some fucking strange animal. Well how about we all come together and preserve the earth for the humans and for all the other species that get to experience life Hell in yeah. this beautiful place. And that's the place that we're headed and I think the plants and the legalization of the plants and MDMA are gonna be the major catalysts that are gonna help make that possible. It's really
1: interesting you said that John asked, what is your excitement now around maps, the multi-association Multidisciplinary Association for psychedelic studies? What are you most excited about with maps
0: now <laughs> Well, I mean, it looks like MDMA assisted psychotherapy might be legal by 2021 and there's no better way to open the heart and to find love for other people and heal the trauma than that. I mean I really look for those of you who are Tolkien fans, this is that moment in the in the two towers that second book, where it looks like all is lost and the orcs are pounding their shields and they're overrunning the castle, and then all of a sudden, high on the hill, you know, you have Gandalf with his white staff coming over, charging on white stallions, and that's MDMA, and that's the plants that are coming at our darkest hour to really awaken us to the truth of who we are and overcome these orky little egos that are running the show. (laughs)
1: I just feel like as I'm listening to you talk here, it's like there's everything at at stake and then there's nothing at stake at the whole time. And and this duality is something that you speak of a lot when it comes to wellness and living a life of just acknowledging that this duality even exists. How do you see wellness now? It's been a year since you answered that question before, but what is wellness to you now and how does duality apply to that?
0: (laughs) I think wellness, wellness is how, how easy it is for you to laugh. And how easy it is for you to love. You can laugh and you can love. You're well, you know. And, and those—that's really, that's really the the key thing, you know. And yeah, all right. And maybe maybe be able to move around. Maybe if there's a, a sand volleyball game that's about to kick off, you don't have to sit on the sidelines because your body's too tired or hurt or whatever. But generally, they all go hand in hand, you know. Like if you're really able to love, if you're really able to laugh. Probably means you're taking care of yourself and your energy. Yeah. So if you're able to laugh, be able to love, if you're able to move, uh, you're, you're well in my book.
1: Man, just so appreciate your words for so many different reasons. And it's been a joy to connect again. The book is ownthedaybook.com. But where can people reach out to you? You're pretty active on Instagram. I see you writing yeah, lots of great, poetry on Instagram.
0: Yeah, that's a great place. You can yeah. uh, go to my blog and sign up for my newsletter too. That gets the freshest freshy poetry that that comes out. I've been enjoying writing that. Um, but yeah, listen to my podcast, Aubrey Marcus podcast. That's great. And, but Instagram is probably my most active platform at Aubrey Marcus.
1: Awesome. Okay. Putting my hands together, just acknowledging the work that you continue to do, man. This book, it's the culmination of 36. How old are you? 37, 37, 37 years of your life. I'm 37 as well. Thank you for what you (laughs) do, Aubrey. Thank you for sharing your gifts with the world, man.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. And thank you for another phenomenal interview. You're, you're literally one of the best in the game, man. And I don't think you get enough credit for that.
1: Dude, I appreciate that coming from you. Thanks so much, man. Of course, brother. forward slash radio and while you're at my house on the web Join us in the Wellness Force Community newsletter on that page, and I'll send you four free guides around staying healthy with your eating, moving, and sleeping while you travel. But don't let this conversation stop here. Join a group of people like you over at the Wellness Force Community Facebook page. This is where we talk about the things that really matter. We share our wins, inspirations, struggles, and a lot more. So join us, tap on the show artwork on your phone, and hit that purple link that says join the Facebook group, and I will welcome you at the door. Okay, now you get to go out into your world and create impact for the people that you care about. So until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness.